You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to a special edition of Nowhere to Run. This is going to be me introducing an audio from the recent video that I did called The Sabbath and the Covenants, or alternately entitled Should Christians Keep the Sabbath in the New Covenant? I'm super proud of this. It's probably the most proud I've ever been of anything that uh, I've done, and um, I encourage you to, to watch the video if you have the opportunity, as opposed to listen to this audio. Um, I intentionally waited about a week and a half to post the audio because I wanted as much as possible to force people to watch it uh, that normally would have just listened to it because I think that the retention level goes su- way, way down uh, when you when you listen to it. Uh, I, I sort of designed it to be watched, and there is just so much information in it that I just can't encourage you enough to watch it if you have the opportunity. You can, of course, do that at the website, NowhereToRunRadio.com, or go to any one of my YouTube channels. It's uploaded in uh, full form on verse-by-verse Bible teaching, uh, verse-by-verse BT, and then it's uploaded in 15-minute segments on the Nowhere to Run 1984. So if you want to re-upload those on your channel, by all means do so. And as always, I encourage you to rename them uh, appropriately. Google loves to hear new names of things and... uh, and it might get to another person who's Googling a different way to ask the same question. So I encourage you to do that if you are at all inclined to do so. Okay, so the reason I think this is worth your time is that it's it's not just for the people that have the Sabbath issue um, settled in their mind one way or the other. This is for everybody that has any interest whatsoever in what the Bible has to say about the biggest possible issues. This is the story of God and man. It's uh, If you understand um, that story, you will understand the Sabbath. This Understanding the Sabbath is a byproduct of understanding the Bible, and especially as it relates to the covenants, which, of course, you're going to hear me talk about in just a minute. But uh, I learned a whole lot in the making of this. And I mean, when I say that, I mean, I actually learned a lot of really cool things. Uh, I hope that you'll get a sense of that. that The Bible is just really cool and very consistent. And you'll kind of be kicking yourself that you didn't see some of these things before. Uh, I know I certainly did. And I, I, I just encourage people to, uh, to, to watch it, to share it. And that's the last thing I'll talk about is the sharing of it. Um, not just the sharing of it on YouTube and, and, and Twitter and Facebook and that kind of thing, but the sharing of it, uh, verbally or otherwise with you, the people in your sphere of influence because um, this has the kind of information in it that I hope will give you a rounded, well-rounded idea of the entire issue. Like what I hope that you will be able to say after watching this is, hey, I understand this a whole lot better. I intuitively get this now. And what I hope will happen is that when you get into those conversations with people, you'll be able to kind of intuitively um, answer the question because you'll understand it and you won't have to be like, well, which verses do we quote Seventh-day Adventists again? Um, that's what I hope is that you will be built up in your knowledge of doctrine and the scriptures through this video. Um, that being said, I think that the video itself can also be a, a powerful tool 
um, by itself just posted on Facebook and that kind of thing, especially with people that are leaders of groups or just Seventh-day Adventist friends or Hebrew Roots friends or whatever, Sabbatarian friends or whatnot. I think that it encourages debate and conversation uh, about it. If people watch it, it's going to, especially Seventh-day Adventists, if they watch it all the way through, it's going to make them have trouble sleeping at night. Um, I tried to understand SDA on this issue as best as I can, and some of the issues that I brought up I know are going to cause uh, serious dilemma and conflict in their uh, what they've been told and, and everything else. But So all that to say, please share it on Facebook with people that you know um, or, or on Twitter or what have you. Uh, re-upload it to YouTube. All that stuff will be helpful. And probably, well, definitely more important than all that, pray that the Lord goes with this video, that he sort of goes with it in the sense of when people watch it, he is convicting them and teaching them about it because all the good information and doctrine in the world isn't going to change a hardened heart and without his help. So I pray um, and I hope you pray too for this video as it goes out uh, to do as much good as, as he wills it to do. Thanks. And here is the audio from the Sabbath and the covenants or should Christians keep the Sabbath and the new covenant? Thanks. The Sabbath is one of the most important concepts in the Bible, and it's also one of the most theologically complex. To gain a full understanding of its significance and purpose, you really need to undertake a comprehensive study of the entire Bible, especially in relation to the so-called covenants that God makes with man. What I'm about to explain in this study will take some time, but I encourage you to stay with me, because the reason that there's so much confusion among Christians about the Sabbath is only because many Christians, especially new ones, have never heard what I'm about to share with you. Before I get into the study, I think it would be good to answer some of the easily dismissed things that people say about the Sabbath first, because they can be unnecessary hindrances to the following study. The Sabbath day is on the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday. It always has been, and few Bible teachers would disagree with this. However, some have been taught that the reason Christians meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, is because that they believe Sunday is the new Sabbath day. In other words, that the Sabbath day has been changed from the seventh day to the first day. They are told that Christians believe this because Constantine made an edict declaring that Christians in Rome should not work on Sunday in the year 321. There are several problems with this theory that is so commonly taught. The real reason that Christians have always met on Sunday has nothing to do with Constantine, the Catholic Church, or surprisingly, even the Sabbath itself. The early Christians referred to Sunday, the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day, and the reason they met, ate together, and worshipped the Lord on the first day of the week was for two very good biblical reasons. The first reason was that Sunday was the day that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mentioned that the empty tomb was found. Mark 16, 1-3 says, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had brought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. Similar passages can be found in Matthew 28, 1, and Luke 23:55 and 24, 2. The other biblical reason that the early Christians met on the first day of the week was because of the Sunday appearances of the resurrected Christ. After Jesus rose from the dead, 
there were 40 days before he ascended into heaven. So he was on earth 40 days after he rose from the dead. During that time, Scripture records seven times in which he appears to his disciples. On five of those occasions, the Bible goes out of its way to tell us that he met them on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Here is an example. John 20:19 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and said unto them, Peace be unto you. There are many other first-day appearances of the resurrected Jesus. For further study of these passages, see the references on the screen or in the notes. During these first-day appearances, Jesus allowed himself to be worshipped, he ate meals with his disciples, he commissioned them, breathed the Holy Spirit on them, and taught them. These are some of the reasons that the early church met together to eat, worship, and learn from the scriptures on Sunday. It is also very clear, as we will see from the early writings of the Church Fathers, that the tradition of the Lord's Day on Sunday was being kept by the brand new church hundreds of years before Constantine. But there's also a lot of biblical evidence that they had begun this tradition in biblical times as well. For example, Acts 20 verse 7 says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. This passage specifically mentions Paul's preaching as well as a fellowship meal occurring on Sunday. Also, in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Paul instructs the Corinthian church here, as he apparently instructed the Galatian churches before this, to lay up an offering for those experiencing famine in Jerusalem, and to do it on the first day of the week. There would appear no other reason for him to mention the day of the week, unless they were already meeting regularly on that day. And in Revelation 1 verse 10 we find this passage, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. Here we have a mention of the Lord's Day by John, and we know from the early church fathers like Ignatius of Antioch, who was a student of the Apostle John, that the Lord's Day was referring to the day the Lord rose from the dead, i.e. Sunday. He said the following, if, therefore, those who are brought up in the ancient order of things, that have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in observance of the Lord's day, on which our life has sprung up again by him and by his death. Another church father, Justin Martyr, who, to give you some context, died about 165 A.D., about 150 years before Constantine's edict. He said the following after giving a very detailed description of their church services, which sounded a lot like the ones we have today. He said, But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. You can find a lot of similar statements from early Christians in the centuries before Constantine. The fact is that the reason Christians meet on Sunday has absolutely nothing to do with Constantine or the Sabbath, and it has a strong biblical basis.
One final, easily dismissed idea I would like to address before I get into this study is the idea that meeting on Sunday is pagan because the name Sunday derives from the idea of the day of the sun. I would ask this person to consider that the root names for the days of the week in English have no bearing whatsoever on this subject. For example, the name Saturday is derived from the Roman god Saturn and is just as pagan by that standard as Sunday. Monday is named for the moon god, Tuesday from the god of the sky, too. In fact, all the day names in English have pagan backgrounds, so we can see that this argument is one that does not hold water. If you're going to say that Sunday is pagan for this reason, you must certainly include Saturday as being pagan as well. Now we can move into the study of the scripture regarding the Sabbath, and particularly what the Sabbath means to the Christian in the New Covenant. The first thing that we need to study if we're going to understand the Sabbath is the very idea of a covenant. The word covenant means a binding agreement or compact between two or more parties. In legal terms, a covenant basically means an agreement or a contract. There are several legal contracts or covenants that God makes with man in the Bible, and they are extremely important. These covenants have some very interesting similarities with one another when they are studied closely. Let's take a look at the covenant that God makes with Abraham 430 years before Moses and the Ten Commandments. Because of Abraham's faith, God makes a contract with him which says that he will give him innumerable descendants and a land and that through one that would come from his descendants would all the nations of the world be blessed. The New Testament in Galatians 3.16 tells us that this one was referring to Jesus. This covenant with Abraham had what we will see all God's covenants with man had in the Bible, that is, a sign of the covenant, an outward sign that signified that that person was in the covenant. We have something similar with our modern-day marriage covenant. We wear rings as a sign to signify our being in a covenant with our spouse. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. Genesis 17:10 through 11 says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This contract between God and Abraham was passed down through certain sons of Abraham, through a specific blessing, first Isaac, then Jacob, and so on. Four hundred years later, just as God had predicted, Abraham's descendants were enslaved in Egypt where their numbers had grown exponentially. Exodus 2.24 says, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God is a faithful God. He acknowledges that he has signed a contract with Abraham, a contract that would ultimately result in a redeemer for the entire human race. He then begins to deliver them from Egypt and lead them to the land he has promised them through Abraham. The people that he led out of Egypt were descendants of Abraham, and as such they could be part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, as long as they had faith in God and were circumcised. But this was all about to change. During the forty years that the people were being led from the bondage of Egypt to the promised land, they entered into an additional covenant or contract with God, which is often called the Mosaic Covenant or Sinaitic Covenant. When the children of Israel were camped at Mount Sinai, 
God spoke to Moses and told him to ask the children of Israel if they wanted to enter into a new covenant with him. This covenant or contract, as we will see, is typified by the Ten Commandments and the subsequent laws. God at this time told the Israelites that if they would obey the terms of this contract, then they would have great blessings. But if they did not obey these terms, there would be curses and even death. They were given the option to accept or reject these terms. In Exodus 24, after the Ten Commandments and all the laws and the punishments for breaking those laws had been thoroughly explained, we are told that the Israelites unanimously agreed to the terms of this contract and entered into this covenant with God. Exodus 24, 3 and 8 says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. An interesting side note here is that Christ will later quote this phrase in Exodus, that is, this is the blood of the covenant, when ratifying the new covenant at the Last Supper, which we'll see later. Just like the covenant with Abraham, the Mosaic covenant also had a sign. It was Sabbath-keeping. Exodus thirty-one, twelve and 13 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. This brings us to a crucial point to understand. The Ten Commandments were the very words of the Mosaic Covenant. They were essentially the pages of the contract that the Israelites signed at Sinai. The Ten Commandments are referred to by Scripture as the embodiment of the whole Old Covenant, as we will see. Yes, there were many other laws given at this time, but those laws were essentially expanding on and interpreting the laws on the tablets. So, for example, the Ten Commandments say things like, Thou shalt not steal. But more laws were given between Exodus 20 and Exodus 23, before the ratification of the covenant in Exodus 24, to expand and interpret things like, Thou shalt not steal. For example, those other laws explain what should be done if a thief is caught breaking in, but doesn't yet steal anything, Exodus 22, 2-4. Or if a man gives his neighbor money or articles to keep, and they are stolen out of the man's house, Exodus 22, 7. Or what kind of punishment should there be for ox or sheep stealing? Exodus 22.1 They all fall under the main commandment, Thou shalt not steal. They are only applying and interpreting that one law. The same is true with the Sabbath commandment, the fourth commandment. In that commandment, people are told not to work. But the other laws given interpreted and applied this overarching law. So, for example, the other laws told them that they could not cook on the Sabbath, or kindle a fire on the Sabbath or go out of their place. The other laws told them that the Sabbath must be kept from evening to evening. The other laws told them what to do if someone profaned the Sabbath, i.e. they would be put to death, or if they did any work on it, that they would be cut off from their people. This is why Scripture refers to the Ten Commandments as the, quote, words of the covenant. In other words, the Ten Commandments were the embodiment of the entire Mosaic Covenant. I'm going to have to quote a number of verses on this point so that there can be no doubt in your mind about it, as it is such an important part of our discussion. Exodus 34:28 says, So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. 
that one is pretty clear what was the mosaic covenant but the very words of the ten commandments deuteronomy fourteen thirteen says so he declared to you his covenant which he commanded you to perform the ten commandments and he wrote them on two tablets of stone here's four more from deuteronomy deuteronomy nine nine when i went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone the tablets of the covenant which the lord made with you then i stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights i neither ate bread nor drank water Deuteronomy 9.11, And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Deuteronomy 9.15, So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. Here's an interesting one from 1 Kings 8. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And there I have made a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. So the only thing in the ark is the two tablets, and in the ark is the covenant. This is also interesting because it helps to explain why we get this term, ark of the covenant. These tablets were placed in the ark of the covenant, which symbolized the agreement that God made with the children of Israel in the desert of Sinai. So at this point, after the covenant was made at Sinai, the Israelites were essentially under two covenants, the Abrahamic with the sign of circumcision and the Mosaic covenant with the sign of Sabbath keeping. A notable point here is that scripture says that the promise given to Abraham during his covenant with God was much more important than the covenant given through Moses and that the Ten Commandments covenant was only given because of transgression and that it was meant to expire once the first covenant with Abraham was fulfilled in Christ. Galatians 3, 16-19 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was four hundred and thirty years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So it says here in Galatians 3 that the promise given to Abraham was about a future seed or offspring, singular, not plural, which is referring to Christ, and that the Mosaic law, given 430 years later, did not annul that very important covenant. When it says, till the seed should come, as in, what purpose then does the law serve, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, it is a reference to the fact that the Mosaic laws had an expiration date, that is, that the law would be in effect until the seed would come, which is Christ. He says that the purpose of the law was essentially to keep everyone on track until the very important promise to Abraham was fulfilled. He says the following a few verses later. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The Abrahamic covenant was a covenant based on faith, not works. Romans 4, 2 and 3 says, 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I know this is all a lot to take in, so at this point I would only ask that you take away from this that the promises given to Abraham about how through his line would come a Redeemer one day was the most important covenant of the two, and that essentially the Mosaic covenant was added later and for the purposes of ensuring the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. In addition, that the way in which Abraham entered into his covenant through faith and not works was different from the way that the Mosaic covenant operated, which we'll see in a minute. The idea that the Mosaic covenant was to be replaced by another covenant later on was something that every scripture-reading Jew should have known about because it was very clearly prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others hundreds of years before Christ. Here is one of the most famous prophecies about this. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 32 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. There are a few things I would like to point out about this passage. Number one, it says, quote, The days are coming in which a new covenant would be made. This was hundreds of years after both the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant were instituted, so it must be referring to another covenant besides the two that were already there. We know, because of Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 in the New Testament, that this is referring to what we call the New Covenant, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, it says, quote, "...not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt." This is obviously talking about the Mosaic Covenant, given in the Sinai Desert. And it says that this new covenant will be different than that covenant. So whatever it will be, it will be characterized by a notable difference from the covenant given at Sinai. Number three, it says, My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. This is one of the many ways to show that the old covenant was a conditional one. That is, it could be broken if the person did not do the things that were required of them in that covenant. It also shows that God considered the old covenant to be broken, and so a new one was needed. This idea that the new covenant would make the old covenant unnecessary or obsolete is echoed by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, who says the following after quoting the passage we just read in Jeremiah. He says, In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So, Scripture confirms that when the new prophesied covenant of Jeremiah and Ezekiel came, it would make the Mosaic covenant in the Sinai Desert obsolete. This idea is very consistent in Scripture. Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 8 says, But now he, speaking of Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Also, Second Corinthians 3, verses 6-9 through 9 says, Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, 
was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Notice how Scripture here contrasts the New Covenant with the Old Covenant, which it calls the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. It also refers to it as, quote, the letter. This Old Covenant, which it says is superseded by the New, must be referring to the Ten Commandments as well as the other laws. We see in verse 7 that it says that this covenant was, quote, engraved on stones, an obvious reference to the Ten Commandments, and further shows that the very words of the Old Covenant were the Ten Commandments. A similar point is made in the book of Romans, which also explains why he uses terms like the ministry of death to refer to the Ten Commandments. It says in Romans 7, starting in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say, then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not known of covetousness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. First, let me point out that in context here, Scripture is comparing our relationship to the Ten Commandments, like that of a woman who is married to a husband that has died. It says just before this, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if that husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So, back in our verse, when it says, quote, You also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, it is saying that the new covenant replaces the old in the same way that a new husband replaces a dead one. One is not still married to your dead husband in that case. You are released from that marriage to marry another. It says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, and not in the oldness of the letter. So we have been delivered from the law, which Scripture again refers to as the letter, which we saw earlier was a reference to the Ten Commandments. And just like in that passage, we are not left to guess whether or not the Ten Commandments is being referred to here, because in verse 7, an example of the law he is referring to is quoted. It says, You shall not covet, a quotation of the Tenth Commandment. So we know that whatever else he might mean, it also includes the Ten Commandments. There are many more verses that explain this, but I want to get into some of the specific details regarding the New Covenant and the Sabbath most particularly, so I will only quote one more passage and then conclude this section. It is found in the book of Galatians chapter 4, which compares being under the Old Covenant to being a slave, whereas being in the New Covenant is described as being a son. Galatians 4:22 and 23 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Let me stop right here to explain this. Abraham was promised a son by God, 
but he was getting really old and had not yet had this promised son. He and his wife thought that they would kind of help God along by having Abraham have a child with one of his wife's slaves named Hagar. They named that child Ishmael, but later he and his wife miraculously did have their own son, just as God had promised them. This son, Isaac, was the promised son through whom God intended the line of Christ to come. Scripture continues by saying that these events were symbolic of the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. It continues, Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, speaking of the Mosaic Covenant, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Now we, speaking of people in the New Covenant, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Nevertheless, what does Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. This is how Scripture views the two covenants, the old and the new. The old covenant, with its ten commandments, is referred to as the ministry of death. It is likened to being a slave and not a son, or being married to a dead man. It is called by Scripture obsolete and having passed away. It says that we in the new covenant have been delivered from it, that we have died to it, and that we have been released from it. I know many of you are skeptical and have many questions about the Sabbath. I've tried to anticipate many of them and will address the ones that are most common later on. But before I do that, I need to talk about the new covenant in detail, because if we really understand what Scripture has to say about it, we'll have a much better understanding of the Sabbath when we get to it. The new covenant is a new agreement that God would make with man, a new arrangement on how one is considered righteous before God. God said through the prophet Jeremiah that it would be different than the Mosaic covenant in some distinct ways. We know that this agreement will somehow concern the death of Christ. In Galatians 2.21 it says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. We will learn more about how the death of Christ brings us righteousness apart from the law in this new covenant later on. The new covenant, like the old, has signs. These signs replace the signs of the old covenant. They are not simply added to the other signs of the other covenants. This is because the new covenant, as we have seen, replaces the other two covenants. Therefore, the signs of the new covenant replace the signs of the old. For instance, the sign of circumcision in the Abrahamic covenant, a one-time entrance sign, is replaced by baptism in the new covenant, which is also a one-time entrance sign, signifying that we are willing participants in this new arrangement that God has made with man. This is why Jesus places importance on this symbolic practice in the Great Commission. He says in Matthew 28:19, "Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost." Baptism is the new entrance sign for the new covenant. In Colossians 2, it contrasts circumcision, the old entrance sign of the old covenant, with baptism. It says, "In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead." So, the quote, "circumcision of Christ" 
is, quote, being buried with him in baptism. Notice also the phrase, putting of the body of the sins of the flesh, which here is used in a spiritual sense, but has connotations of physical circumcision, where the flesh was removed from the body. The Apostle Peter also makes a similar statement when he is contrasting circumcision to the new entrance sign of baptism. In 1 Peter 3.21 it says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here we are told that we now have a new antitype, contrasted with circumcision, which is baptism. To avoid confusion about this verse, it's necessary to explain that just like circumcision, the old entrance sign, baptism, the new one, is not necessary for salvation, but, like Peter says, it is the answer of a good conscience toward God. This is made clear in many places, but a very clear one is in Romans chapter 4, where Paul makes the argument that Abraham was accounted righteous by faith first, and only later was circumcised. It says, does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also. To show how this applies to baptism and the new covenant, I need to explain the difference between a seal and a sign according to the Bible. A seal is a spiritual thing that verse 11 tells us Abraham received before he was circumcised. This was his righteousness that he attained by believing God. The sign, or the symbolic act of circumcision, was something that Abraham did as an outward symbol to show that he had received the seal. In the New Testament, the seal of God is the receiving of the Holy Spirit upon hearing and believing the gospel. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, back to explaining how baptism, the sign of the new covenant, corresponds to circumcision, in that it also is a symbolic act done only after the seal of God, the Holy Spirit in this case, is given. Consider when Peter was preaching to the Gentile house of Cornelius. He is shocked to see that God has allowed Gentiles to be a part of God's new covenant. He realizes that they have been saved when he sees that they have been given the Holy Spirit, the seal, through belief in the gospel message which he just got done preaching to them. What is interesting about this passage is that he says that since these Gentiles have obviously already been saved, noting that they have received the Holy Spirit, he might as well baptize them. Acts 10 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Peter then says of this, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So these Gentiles had been saved before Peter baptized them, since the Holy Spirit is the seal of God, which guarantees the inheritance of our redemption, as Ephesians 1 says. 
Some more verses about this seal and guarantee are as follows. Second Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 says, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And Second Corinthians 5, 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So the Gentiles who were sealed with the Holy Spirit in this passage would have gone to heaven if they had died before receiving baptism. In the same way, the thief on the cross, who was not able to perform the sign of baptism, was told by the Lord that he would be in heaven with him that day. So in summary on this point, circumcision was the outward sign of the old covenant. But the seal was attained by Abraham and all true Jews by faith. Baptism is the outward sign of the new covenant. But the seal of God is the Holy Spirit, which only comes by faith in believing of the gospel. There is also a sign in the New Covenant that corresponds to the Sabbath sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The Sabbath was a remembrance sign, an outward sign to be performed in order to remember something. In the case of the Sabbath, it was to remember that God rested on the seventh day of creation. God said to remember the Sabbath day, because it was then that he rested. He says this explicitly in Exodus 31:17 and Exodus 20 verse 11. We will talk more about why remembering God's resting on the seventh day was so important later, but for now just know that it had something to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The new remembrance sign is also all about the gospel. Jesus told his disciples to do what we call the Lord's Supper or communion in remembrance of him. It says in 1 Corinthians 11:24 and following, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This was a proclamation of the Lord's death. In other words, we would be preaching the gospel to ourselves every time we did this. Jesus wanted us to continually remind ourselves of the gospel, that his body was broken for us. In other words, that the full measure of the wrath of God for your and my sins were put on him instead of us. For what purpose? The second part of this sign is the purpose, the blood of the new covenant, the new agreement that God has made with man, which is that he has made a way for your sins to be punished in Christ so that you might be seen as spotless forever. This new spotlessness you receive by faith in Jesus. Probably the most important aspect of the new covenant was that in it God was planning on giving us his spirit in our hearts and that this spirit would in some ways do what the law did in the old covenant. Let's look again at some of the prophecies of the new covenant in the Old Testament in order to understand this better. Jeremiah 31, 32 and following says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here, God is contrasting the new covenant with the law of Moses. He says that the new covenant won't be like the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on stone. In the new one, he's going to write the law on their hearts. This is speaking of the Holy Spirit. 
This connection is far too important in our study of the Sabbath not to dwell on for a minute. We need to look at some verses that contrast the law of the Old Covenant with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 5.18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says, Who also made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, the law of Moses, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Romans 6 verse 7 says, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The reason that there's this consistent contrast in Scripture between the Holy Spirit and the law is because the Spirit in the New Covenant does what the law did in the Old Covenant. The Spirit is now what convicts a person of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the things that the law did in the Old Covenant. John 16, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Well, one question would be, how is this done? The Spirit gives us new desires. It makes us want to do good. And when we do bad, we feel what is known here as the conviction of sins. Or sometimes it is called the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is an important verse, as it shows us that when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit does not leave us when we sin. In fact, in this verse, it reiterates that even in the instance of grieving the Holy Spirit, we are still considered, quote, sealed for the day of redemption by it. The Holy Spirit is not going anywhere if you've been sealed by it. For a full study about why it makes no theological sense for the Holy Spirit to leave us and us become unsaved every time we sin, see a video I did called Legalism Debunked. We are being changed from the inside out by the Spirit. It makes us want to do good things. These good desires that develop are called the fruit of the Spirit. And it says plainly that if this new power of the Spirit is working in you, that there is no law against you anymore. Galatians 5:22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The Holy Spirit is what is causing your fruit to grow, not you. That's why they call it the fruit of the Spirit. Now you're going to stumble and fall on this proverbial tightrope as you're being changed, this process we call sanctification, which continues your entire life. But when you do fall off the tightrope, there is a safety net under you to catch you in the new covenant, called grace, and you learn from every fall that you have. And the great thing is, is that the spirit in you also is what makes you want to get up and get back on the tightrope and try again, and to try to get even further than you did last time. It was God's will that in the new covenant, his people would be driven by love of him through the spirit, not fear of judgment from the law. Let's move on to the Last Supper. The Last Supper is a very important thing to fully understand in our study, for it's on this occasion that the Lord institutes the New Covenant, though it wouldn't fully be instated until after his death. 
If you're not very familiar with the institution of the Old Covenant through Moses on Mount Sinai, it's quite possible to completely miss the full implications of what Jesus is doing at the Last Supper. We mentioned before that Jesus was essentially quoting from Exodus 24 when he said the words, This is the blood of the covenant, referring to the wine glass at the Last Supper. If you go back and read Exodus 24, you'll find some interesting parallels between the institution of the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai and the institution of the New at the Last Supper. In Exodus 24, Moses tells the people the law that God had given him. The people agree to follow the new laws and be in that covenant. They are then sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. This is when Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. Then God told Moses to take a select group of 73 followers up to the mountain, and they had a meal with God. Really, they ate and drank with God. See Exodus 24:11. Jesus was doing the same thing at the Last Supper, that is, instituting a covenant. He even gave them new commandments to follow in their new covenant. John 13:34 and 35 say, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He gives another commandment during this meal, which is to believe in him. John 14:11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. He commands these two things only a few verses before he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is well understood by the writers of the New Testament, such as John, Paul, and James, that this commandment was the New Covenant commandment. They referred to it as the Law of Christ, or the Royal Law. Believing in Him and loving your brother are the only commandments that Jesus ever referred to as His. John helps us to know that we're on the right track in 1 John, when he reiterates that Jesus' commandments were to believe in him and love your brother. He says in 1 John 3, 22-24, And whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Notice first that John calls the commandments that we must keep, believing him and loving one another. This verse is also a good example of how the plural and singular commandment and commandments are interchangeable. Notice also that he says that this is how one knows if we're Christians. This corresponds to the very first mention of this new commandment by the Lord when he says that it would be how the world knows his followers. This new commandment about brotherly love is restated many times in Scripture. For example, it says in 1 John 4:21, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The Lord once again tells us directly in the following verses what his commandment is. This verse is interesting because Jesus contrasts his commandment to love your brethren with his father's commandments to him. This is a very difficult verse to get around for people that want to read into the text that Jesus' commandments were the Ten Commandments, instead of what he explicitly tells us it is. John 15:10 and 12 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Every time you see a charge to keep Jesus' commandments in Scripture, keep reading. It will almost always tell you explicitly what his commandment is, just like in the verse above, and that is to love one another. 
it is very clear that phrases like his or my commandments are only used to refer to what the New Testament writers called the law of Christ, that is, to believe in him and love one another. They are never used to refer to the Ten Commandments, not once. There is much more to say on this point about Jesus' commandments and their relationship to the Spirit. If you're concerned about this, please see the notes for an edited version of my video, Legalism Debunked, which is a detailed study of the idea of Jesus' commandments in John. But to sum it up, the new commandments of the new covenant are belief and love, and they are Holy Spirit-driven and are the new way in which people will know that you are disciples of His not like the old way where people would know by your outward law-keeping. This is the very foundation of the new covenant. Now we will get into the details specific to the Sabbath itself. One question that is asked far too little, in my opinion, is what was the purpose of the Sabbath according to God? Why was he so serious about people keeping it? The reason given in the Ten Commandments was that the Sabbath was to remind them that God rested on the seventh day of creation. Exodus 20 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. This reason is restated several times in Scripture. God wanted his people to remember that he ceased from his creating work for some reason. He didn't just want them to do this once either. He wanted them to do it every single week. So, for some reason, his ceasing from his work was important enough to him to command people to continually remember it. I would suggest that we must find out why that is in order to understand the Sabbath. The seventh day after creation was the only day in which God and Adam and Eve had before they sinned and everything changed. There are suggestions in Scripture that the conditions that God had with man on that one day before sin entered would have continued indefinitely if they had not sinned. It was only on that one day, the seventh day after creation, that God and man had a right relationship apart from the separation of sin. In a sense, the Sabbath day was supposed to be a reminder of the peace that man had with God. They were to rest. As Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man. It was supposed to be a reminder of the freedom from the hard work they had before the fall hard work which was now a part of their fallen world. The following verses speak of how the conditions related to work changed after the fall. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. In fact, if you look at all the things that the Israelites were to do and not do on the Sabbath day, most, if not all of them, would have been completely meaningless to Adam and Eve before the fall, as they were already doing them, or there was no need to do them. For example, the law says not to buy or sell on the Sabbath, but Adam and Eve were told to eat freely from the garden, Genesis 2.16. The law says not to build a fire on the Sabbath, Adam and Eve were in no need of clothes, and so certainly a fire was unnecessary. The law says to delight in the Lord on the Sabbath. But Adam and Eve, in an unfallen world, would have had no need for anyone to tell them to delight in the Lord on a particular day. Dale Ratzliff, in his book Sabbath in Christ, says the following of this. 
Israel's observance of the various Sabbath laws of the Sinaitic Covenant seems to be an acting out in a sinful world what Adam and Eve did in a sinless world. God was essentially saying, remember what it was like when there was peace between God and man before sin entered the world, and when we were in open fellowship with one another. Paul starts off his teaching about Adam and how his sin separated us from God at the fall by pointing out that we have now been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, we have now gained what we lost through Adam, and much more. Romans 5:11 and 12 says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's speaking here of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and he continues throughout this entire chapter comparing Adam to Jesus and how we've been reconciled to God now. What we lost through Adam we have gained in Christ and much more. This is one of the things that the Sabbath was doing, reminding people of their need for reconciliation with God. But it was not the only thing that it was doing. There were other days that were considered Sabbaths in the law as well, where no work was to be done. These included the seven annual Sabbaths, such as Passover and First Fruits and others, as well as the Sabbath year, which occurred every seven years. This was when the land was to receive its rest. There was also another Sabbath called Jubilee. This was to be celebrated every seventh sabbatical year, in other words, every fifty years. This is where slaves were to be set free and redeemed from bondage, debts were to be erased, and many other interesting things. Unfortunately, there's actually no record of the Jubilee ever being kept by the Jews in Scripture. Dale Ratzliff writes of this, There is an underlying sense of freedom in the Sabbath concept. Everyone is free from the responsibility of work. The Israelites, the slaves, the foreigners, the animals, even the land itself. There seems to be a rising crescendo in the sabbatical cycle, which reaches its peak in the Jubilee. Jesus makes a few references to the Jubilee year, which he calls the acceptable year of the Lord, when he quotes from Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was going to fulfill the Jubilee Sabbath. He was going to set all those in bondage free. Related to this, God said that another purpose of the Sabbath was to remind the Israelites that they had been set free from their bondage in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The slavery they suffered under the Egyptian government at that time was terrible and offered no rest from their work. Exodus 2.23 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. This brings us to the final purpose for the Sabbath. That is, to continually point the Jews toward a time in the future that they would be free from their religious works of the law. 
This is explicitly stated as the reason for the Sabbath in the New Testament book of Hebrews when it says in Hebrews 4, 4 and 10, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested the seventh day from all his works. For whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We are to rest from our works. And in context, this is talking to Christians who wanted to go back under the Mosaic law. He is pleading with them to rest from trying to please God through their works of the Old Testament law. He is telling them that true rest comes from faith and belief in the good news. He says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message that they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. In context, in Hebrews 4, he is definitely talking about the seventh-day Sabbath. He's saying that the seventh-day Sabbath was symbolic of a rest that can now only be entered through faith in Jesus Christ, a rest that constitutes a resting from your religious works of the Old Testament law. Jesus told people to come to him for rest. He said that his rest was easy. He said that it was a light yoke contrasted with a heavy laden one. It says, Come unto me, all ye that labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath, along with all the other Jewish rituals, were all pointing to him. Colossians 2:16 and 17 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Here we are told we are not to be judged in regard to keeping these Old Testament rituals and that they served as a pointer to Christ for the Jews. This idea of Jewish rituals like the festivals and new moons and Sabbaths being a shadow is interesting. If someone you love is casting a shadow, you would be glad to see that shadow before they actually arrived. But once they did arrive, it would be silly to go on hugging their shadow. The person that was casting the shadow is now standing right before you. Hug them. There's no longer any need to embrace their shadow. This is what the Pharisees and others were doing in Jesus' day. They wanted to go on hugging the shadow when the Lord of the Sabbath was standing right there in front of them. As a side note, I would recommend the book to you, Sabbath in Christ, by Dale Ratzliff, if you have any questions as to whether or not the seventh-day Sabbath is in view in this passage in Colossians 2. He included in that book a very technical study by a Bible scholar named Jerry A. Gladson, which answers the question definitively as yes. I think it should be pretty obvious where I'm going at this point. That is, that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath which was always pointing to his redeeming us from the law and us resting from our works and being reconciled to God in a way even better than in Eden. But I have not yet explained exactly how that occurred, nor have I articulated what that means for you and me now. I will address this later, but I think it's time that I should start to answer some common objections to this idea, as the answers will actually help build my case and lead to my conclusions. Objection 1. Jesus said in Matthew 18 that not one jot or tittle would pass from the law until heaven and earth passed away. And heaven and earth has not passed away yet, so the law has not passed away either. 
I deliberately misquoted Matthew 5.18 here, as this verse is often misquoted when this objection is made. I will quote the verse correctly and in context, and then discuss why a misquotation is often needed to make this objection. Matthew 5.17 and 18 says, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. This quotation is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, a place where Jesus was showing his authority over the law. He said many times things like, The law says this, but I say this. He was answering here an objection that many people were beginning to have because of his teachings. Namely, have you come to do away with the law? He answers them very plainly in verse 17. He says that he has not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. What can we take from this except that Jesus planned on fulfilling the law? Then in verse 18 he says again very plainly that the jots and tittles of the law will in fact pass away, but not until he fulfills them all. Sometimes people forget this very important till, as in, till all be fulfilled. This is not a teaching that the law won't pass away. This is an explicit teaching that Jesus indeed did plan on the law and the prophets being fulfilled by him, jots and tittles and all. We have already noted another very important till in Scripture that relates to this. Galatians 3.19 says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The law and the prophets had an expiration date. Jesus' mission was to fulfill them, and thus do away with the righteous requirement of the law. Romans 8, 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If you do a word study on the word fulfill that Jesus used in this famous passage, you will see that it is a word used to denote something that is done once in the past to complete something. And you will also notice that even by this very early part of his ministry, that is, the Sermon on the Mount, he had already, quote, fulfilled several of the things written about him in the Law and Prophets. Here are a few examples all before Matthew 5 when this statement is made. Matthew 1, and 23 says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew 2, 14 and 15 says, When he rose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. And Matthew 2.23, it says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. In the interest of time, I won't quote all the verses that speak of Christ fulfilling some aspect of the scriptures. But it will suffice to say that even before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was well on his way to fulfilling the law and the prophets. A secondary objection you might have here is, but not all things. Jesus said not until all things are fulfilled would the law and the prophets pass. And that's a good point. We can actually pinpoint the very moment in time when Jesus considered that all things were fulfilled. John nineteen twenty-eight through 30 says, 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So there can be no doubt that Jesus considered all things fulfilled at his death on the cross. There are more things going on in this verse than meets the eye, too. It gives me chills to think about all the implications of this. In the interest of time, I must leave this study to you about why drinking the sour wine here, sometimes called vinegar, is so important. But I'll give you a head start by saying it was the fourth cup of the Passover meal, the one called the cup of praise or restoration, based on God's statement, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I also encourage you to do a study of hyssop to fully understand what's going on here. Hyssop is mentioned here as the stick that was used to hold the sponge of sour wine. Hyssop was first used at the first Passover to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, but it was also used to inaugurate the old covenant. Here it is used to inaugurate the new, with the sour wine being symbolic of the blood of the new covenant. Hebrews 9, 18-20 says, Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Jesus said that the law of Moses was speaking of him. He said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses and the prophets. That was one of the primary things he came to do. Scripture tells us that it was all fulfilled at his death. Hebrews 9.15 says, And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets which he said were all about him anyway. And scripture tells us that he finished what he started. That is, he accomplished his mission. Objection number two. So if Jesus fulfilled the law, does that mean that we can now murder, steal, commit adultery, worship idols, and all the other things that the Ten Commandments said not to do? You may have already noticed that I'm taking a different angle than most apologists do when explaining the Sabbath in the New Covenant. They will often say that nine of the commandments are still in effect today, but the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, isn't, because it is the only one that was a ritual law, and the rituals have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I think that that is bad theology, even though I'm sure their hearts are probably in the right place. I've made it clear in this study that Scripture teaches that none of the Ten Commandments are still in effect today. They have all been done away with. They were all the very words of the Old Covenant, kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Scripture repeatedly refers to the, quote, tablets of stone as the embodiment of the Old Mosaic Covenant. We noted all that in detail in the first section. All the Ten Commandments were replaced with the so-called Law of Christ, what Jesus calls His Commandment at the Last Supper's institution of the New Covenant, which is to love your neighbor. Scripture is explicit on this fact. Romans 13, 8-10 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, 
you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Here the Ten Commandments are clearly in view. So is Scripture teaching us here that it's okay to commit adultery, murder, steal, bear false witness, etc., as long as we love people? To think this is to fundamentally misunderstand the New Covenant. As we have seen, the purpose that God had for the New Covenant was that He would put His Spirit in a person at the moment of salvation, and that His Spirit would give the person a new desire to do good. The Spirit would cause a person to live morally. It is called the fruit of the Spirit. All the morality that was stressed in the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament. All the things that people ask about in this objection, like adultery or murder, idolatry, and indeed all the moral commandments, are called deeds or lusts of the flesh, and they are all mentioned in the various New Testament list of sins. Here is one of those lists. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. The New Testament writers like Paul and Peter were always dealing with this same objection after they would explain the liberty of the gospel. That's why many times they had to stress lists like these in the New Testament. They were saying, no guys, I'm not saying adultery is okay. Sins are obvious. Why are you even asking about this? They are this and this and that. But not in one verse in the New Testament is there a single charge to keep an Old Testament ritual like the Sabbath or Passover or anything else. In fact, to the contrary, an entire book of the Bible, Galatians, was written saying that we don't need to do this. Murder and adultery and all these other moral principles were not pointing to Christ like the Sabbath was. That makes no sense. Those things could not be fulfilled like the Sabbath or Passover or the sacrificial system. For detailed descriptions of the differences between moral and ritual laws and why they existed, see the book Sabbath in Christ. Paul was always dealing with this question. Well, if you say we have liberty, then why should we not sin? Romans 6, 1-14 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin no longer has the power over us it once did if we're saved. We have been given a new liberty. 
Paul spends the entire next chapter, Romans chapter 7, explaining that though we have been free from the power of sin, it does not mean that we won't sin ever again. John echoes this in 1 John. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we have been saved, we have a safety net under us to catch us if we sin. There is no longer any condemnation for our sins in Christ. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The problem is that if someone is not truly saved, they do not really want to do good. And those are the people that see this as too good to be true. And sadly, for them, it is. It can't work for them. They don't have the one ingredient necessary to be trusted with this liberty, that is, the Holy Spirit. We're told to examine ourselves to see if this Spirit is in us. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you are disqualified. We can do that by looking for the fruits of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5:22 and 23. Are they evident in your life? 1 John 24 says, And by this we know that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. So to answer this objection plainly, no, murder and adultery and all these other things are not okay in the New Covenant. And all the moral principles like stealing and idolatry are reiterated in the New Testament as sins. But people that are truly saved will not need to be told by the law not to do these things, as their hearts will be changed, and they will not want to do them out of love of God. But if a child of God does sin, there is now no condemnation for them. The difference is the spirit. Objection number three. It says in the Old Testament that the Sabbath should be kept forever, or throughout your generations. It also seems to be kept in the millennium. What do you have to say about that? Here's an example of verses like this in regard to the Sabbath. Exodus 31:16 and 17 says, Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Before I get started explaining this, I need to add a few things to this list of rituals like the Sabbath that are described as being everlasting or eternal or forever. These words like forever, everlasting, and perpetual are all using the Hebrew word olam, and the word is used to describe the duration of many practices in the Old Testament. All of the following are described as being olam or forever. The Jewish Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the tabernacle candles, the tabernacle showbread, the Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, grain offerings, incense burning, tabernacle work, priest washing, circumcision, and the Sabbath. Unlike some people, I will not try to say that forever doesn't really mean forever, or that it's just some allegorical length of time. I think the word olam, or forever, probably means forever. And incidentally, most of the things on this list are mentioned as occurring during the millennium as well. But more on that in a minute. So what are we to make of this? What about keeping the feasts? They are clearly said to be forever. Here's an example. Exodus 12:17 says, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Or what about the Levitical priesthood of Aaron? It was also said to be forever, or olam, but it's also said to have ended in the New Covenant. 
Hebrews 7:11 through 12 says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek, and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. We could go down this list and show that the things like animal sacrifices and the various feasts that were all said to be olam, or forever, just like the Sabbath, are explicitly said not to be necessary in the New Covenant. But I think that you get the point. This argument that the Sabbath was said to be forever in the Old Testament, and therefore we must keep it in the New Covenant, is simply picking and choosing which forevers of the Old Testament that they want, and disregarding the ones that they don't. Besides, at this point in this presentation, you can get a sense of how many verses in the Bible that you would have to just disregard to believe that keeping the Mosaic Law and its rituals were necessary in the New Covenant. In other words, Scripture is clear that the Law of Moses and all its ordinances, like feasts, have been fulfilled in the New Covenant. So again, how are we to understand these forevers in regard to these rituals? Am I saying that this is a contradiction in Scripture? I think that these forevers are referring in some sense to the millennium, where there seems to be a reinstitution of many of the Old Testament rituals. Yet they are still not spoken of in a salvific sense, but more in a memorial sense and for the purpose of worship. For example, in Ezekiel 42-46, through 46, which is clearly speaking of the millennium, it shows that during that time all the principal sacrifices that were introduced in the Levitical system will again be present, namely the burnt offering, the oblation, the peace offering, the sin and trespass offering, and the drink offering. The same chapters also show that many of the feasts will also be celebrated. The Sabbath and the new moons will also be celebrated by all flesh. Isaiah 66:23 says, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So what are we supposed to make of all this stuff? Should we be celebrating new moons and making burnt offerings because they're made in the millennium? The millennium is a time that is very interesting. Allow me to name just a few of its interesting qualities. Ezekiel describes how the city of Jerusalem, for example, will be about nine times its current size, and there's going to be a temple in that city that's about the size of the current city of Jerusalem. This temple described by Ezekiel actually gives modern-day Jews a whole lot of trouble because he describes a temple where there is no court of the Gentiles. That is, there's no longer a separation between the Gentiles and women and everybody else. There's no veil, so there's no separation between God and man anymore. There's no Ark of the Covenant, and many other things like this. There also seems to be a very interesting difference in the lay of the land, and animals. For example, animals will no longer eat other animals. Isaiah eleven six through 8 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. I mention all this to give you a sense that the millennium is a different place. The earth is different. The laws of nature are different. And it's not good doctrine to say that just because something is said to be done in the millennium, that we should be doing it now. You would not let your child play in a cobra's den today, I hope, nor would you let a lion into a sheep pen. In the same way, you would not say that just because animal sacrifices and new moon feasts seem to be kept in the millennium, that we should be doing it today. The most important reason why not is because you would have to disregard 
all the other scriptures we have seen that say explicitly that in the new covenant these sacrifices and other ordinances of the mosaic covenant are not required whatever the reasons that god has decided to have these things done in the millennium i don't really know but most bible scholars will say something like this in the coming millennium the sacrifices will look back on the life and death of christ in this world whereas the sacrifices of the levitical system looked forward to the coming and sacrificial work of christ objection number four in matthew twenty four jesus says that we should pray that our flight not be on the sabbath does this mean that he expects us to be keeping the sabbath when that day comes let's start by quoting this passage in context matthew twenty four fifteen through twenty one says therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by daniel the prophet standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be first we notice that this is a warning to flee from judea when they see the abomination of desolation this is referring to when the antichrist will declare himself to be higher than god in the holy place in jerusalem we know that at this exact time a persecution will begin that we are told will be unlike anything before it jesus warns his people that are in judea to flee very fast not even going down to get anything out of their house this is because the command to kill people from the antichrist will have its epicenter if you will in judea at the time just before this we know that the people in judea will have been offering the daily sacrifice in the temple we know this because the abomination of desolation causes these daily sacrifices to cease daniel nine twenty seven therefore the time just prior to this event will be one of great religious devotion in israel though it is likely that this religious devotion will not be acceptable to god but rather part of a false deception encouraged in some way by the antichrist even today in very atheistic and secular israel many trains and buses and cabs and planes don't operate on the sabbath making it very difficult to travel on the sabbath though at present you wouldn't be stoned to death if you got caught breaking the sabbath but you can imagine what it would be like if the entire nation of israel is back to making daily sacrifices and is in a time of fervent religious devotion things would be very different on the sabbath the lord starts out here with a non-negotiable command to flee for the people near the epicenter this fleeing must happen either way winter or not pregnant or not sabbath or not it says then let those who are in judea flee to the mountains but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight might not be in the winter or on the sabbath pregnancy nursing babies and winter as well as sabbath keeping in judea are all compared for one reason that is that they would all slow down your fleeing it does not say don't flee if you're pregnant it just says woe to you in other words because your flight will be slower than others so no this does not mean that christians should keep the sabbath at all this is a command to flee the antichrist if you live in judea during the time of the abomination of desolation and a lament for those who will have a harder time doing it objection number five james said quote, faith without works is dead james two seventeen says so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead here again context is key 
What works is James talking about? He tells us just before this verse. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. This royal law is the law of Christ given at the Last Supper. The things that James is telling people to do in this letter have to do with this law. For example, in the immediate context, we see that James is talking about how this love of the brethren plays out. This is not just in words, but in deeds. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Anyone that has studied James knows that his main burden is the law of Christ, loving people and treating them well. For example, he says things like, Pure religion is visiting the orphan and widows in their affliction. The works he is trying to get them to do here are the works of the new law of loving your brother as yourself and giving yourself for them. People miss that James is basically quoting from the Last Supper when he says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He is referring here to the thing that Jesus said about the new law of loving your brother, and that is that it would be the way in which people would see your faith. John thirteen thirty four and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. James is saying that if the law of the new covenant is to love your brother, what James calls the royal law, the works of the law should be things like not showing partiality and taking care of the orphans and widows and such. He's saying that we shouldn't just talk about it, but we should do it. In no way does James imply that doing any of this is what we need to do to be saved. He is clearly saying the same thing that Jesus says, that if you are really saved, if you have been given the Spirit of God in your heart, it will begin to give you these new desires. It will be evidence of your salvation, not the cause of it. There are a few more important things that we need to make sure we understand about the new covenant before I close, the most important of which is our righteousness in Christ. I think it's good to think of righteousness as our rightness before God. When we stand before God, will we be right with Him or not? Scripture teaches that none are righteous, Romans chapter 3. We cannot be perfect, but that nothing less than perfection will do. This dilemma is the heart of the gospel. We come before God, if we have been saved, on the basis of Christ's perfection or Christ's righteousness. Philippians 3.9 says, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Jesus lived a perfect life. He is the only person in history to deserve to go to heaven. God's gift, if we are saved, is that he has agreed to let us give Jesus our sin to be punished on the cross, and in exchange we can be seen by God with Jesus' righteousness, or Jesus' perfection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Commenting on this verse, one Bible teacher put it this way, that means that God treated Jesus as though he had committed every sin that was or will ever be committed by every person who would ever believe, when in fact he had committed none of them. 
Hanging on the cross, he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. Hanging on the cross, he was a spotless lamb. He was never for a split second a sinner. He is holy God on the cross. But God is treating him, I'll put it more practically, as if he lived my life. God punished Jesus for my sin, turns right around and treats me as if I lived his life. When God looks at the cross, he sees you, and when he looks at you, he sees Christ. This is what scripture means when it says we are in him. We are in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is what the Lord's great prayer for us was just before he was killed. It says in John 17, 20 through 21, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is why it will be foolishness to appeal to your Sabbath keeping or your good works when you stand before God. You cannot measure up. There is only one hope for you on Judgment Day, and that is to be hidden in Christ. You have not measured up, but there is one that did, and you can enter into a covenant of peace with God through faith in Him. The dangers of not understanding this and thinking that you're kind of doing God a favor by keeping the Sabbath are very severe. Paul was worried for the Galatians, who believed in Jesus, but wanted to kind of be extra saved by doing some of the Old Testament rituals. Paul says this to them, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements, to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Why should Paul be worried for them? I mean, isn't it just like having insurance? I'll go ahead and keep some of these Old Testament laws just in case God likes it. Scripture says that that is a different gospel and that you don't understand the true gospel and that you are in great danger. Galatians 5, 2-4 says, Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. In fact, many times people aren't actually saved until they repent from their dead works. They may even believe that Jesus was the Son of God and all this right doctrine, but they've never actually had faith in Him. They still are only having faith in themselves and their works. Scripture tells you to repent of your dead works. It calls this part of the foundation of the Christian doctrine. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This is actually where many people out there listening to me right now are. They need to trust Christ for their righteousness before God and repent of their trying to come to God by their works, an impossible task, and a different gospel. In fact, it's not good news at all. In other words, you need to be saved by faith in Christ. Finally, I'll touch on some practical matters and give some opinions. What should we do on the Sabbath, if anything? I personally think that the Sabbath is a lot like eating kosher or being circumcised, in that they are all very healthy life choices and are beneficial. But the minute that they become something that you're doing to be extra saved is the minute that you're in danger of being put back into bondage, of which keeping the whole law perfectly is your only hope of righteousness. For example, I don't eat much pork. 
or at least I rarely buy it. I sometimes eat it when we're at friends' houses or on similar occasions. I think that that is a healthy choice for me, but in no way do I think it is a religious obligation. Similarly, I think circumcision is a healthy thing to do. Studies have shown marked decreases in things like cervical cancer where circumcision is practiced. These are things to do when you have absolutely no religious conviction about them. Similarly, the Sabbath is a good day for rest. Man is wired for rest, and it is extremely healthy to do so. In fact, all God's ritual laws were healthy. It was healthy to not eat pork or shellfish. It's healthy to wash your hands. It's healthy to be circumcised. It's healthy to rest one day a week. But in the New Covenant, all things are lawful for us, but still not all things are beneficial. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. I should also note that keeping the Sabbath and other Old Testament laws may in fact be something that God has put on your heart to minister to people in cults. I know a few occasions where God has put this on a person's heart, and because they kept the Sabbath, they were able to reach a person with the gospel that they otherwise would not have been able to. But if you do this, you must remember that your keeping the Sabbath is not pleasing God or adding points to your scorecard. That is a fundamental and dangerous misunderstanding of how one is made righteous. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Restores my soul, He restores my 